0: Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy, to chapter 11, looking at the first seven verses here this evening. As you're turning there, if you would please stand as well as we honor the public reading of God's word. Deuteronomy 11, verses 1 through 7. Therefore, you shall love the Lord your God, and keep his charge, his statutes, his judgments, and his commandments, always. Know today that I do not speak with your children who have not known, and who have not seen the chastening of the Lord your God, his greatness, and his mighty hand, and his outstretched arm, his signs, and his acts, which he did in the midst of Egypt, to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to all his land. What he did to the army of Egypt, to their horses and their chariots, how he made the waters of the Red Sea overflow them as they pursued you, and how the Lord has destroyed them to this day, what he did for you in the wilderness until you came to this place, and what he did to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, the son of Reuben, how the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up, their households, their tents, and all their substance that was in their possession in the midst of all Israel. But your eyes have seen every great act of the Lord which he did. Thus far, the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord once again in prayer. Father, How we do pray that you would give us hearts to love you, especially in light of all of the great and wonderful things that you have done for us, which our own eyes have seen. Lord, help us to see even the depth of our obligation to love you, and that in so doing we would see the great wickedness of not loving you. Lord, please melt our hearts, remove our hearts of stone, and help us to grow in our love for you for we ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. In life, in very many situations in life, a person's knowledge or experience with something sets our expectations for what we expect from that person. If there is a young child who is perhaps doing his chores incorrectly, you know that can be overlooked. But as the child gets older, there is a greater expectation that the child would do the chores better, that he would do a, a better job because he knows better. Or if you think about just comparing an amateur in any uh, situation versus a professional, we would always expect the professional to be able to do better because he has a greater knowledge and he has greater experience. With greater knowledge and experience comes a greater expectation to be able to do something well. And this is not just true in, as a general principle, but it's also true morally. So, for instance, if we go back to the idea of a, a small child, we may excuse a small child doing something wrong, doing something even morally wrong, uh, if the child does not understand that what he is doing uh, is, in fact, wrong. And this could maybe apply to other situations as well. If people did not know something was, was uh, wrong, we would overlook it. But as the person grows in understanding and in knowledge, or the situation becomes enlightened to them, then all of a sudden there is a greater obligation to act correctly. And this is not just true in general and morally, but it's even true spiritually. And this is what Moses here is speaking about in these verses, that as you increase in your knowledge and experience, your experiential knowledge of the grace of God and of his great acts, then there is a corresponding greater obligation for obedience and for love for God as you grow in your experience of God, then there is necessarily a a greater obligation to love God. And this is the way that Moses is even addressing the people in this passage. He's He's speaking to the people about their privileged position. Your eyes have seen, you've seen all the works of God. And because you've seen it, Moses reasons, You really have no excuse not to love god your obligation to love god the obligation to obey the command that moses is giving to love god is rooted and grounded in the fact that your own eyes have seen everything that god has done as knowledge increases so does the obligation to love god now moses here is continuing his uh conclusion of his exposition of the first great commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul and strength. Last week, if you remember, we began the, the, to look at this conclusion where Moses in summarizing the great love, which God has shown for his people as the, as the foundation for the reason why God's people must love him. We looked at how there is this great gap between the, the glory of God and the lowliness of his people, and yet God in his love bridged that gap. Now Moses is saying here, it's not just that God did this to show you his great love for you, but it's also the case that you know that he did this for you. You saw it with your own eyes. And if you've seen that kind of love with your own eyes, then you must love him. So we'll look at this passage now under two headings. First, we'll notice in the beginning of uh verses 1 and 2 and then also in verse 7 really the frame of the passage Moses roots the requirement to love God in the knowledge of his works the fact that they that they know it they know what the works of God are and then in the middle part of the passage from the second part of verse 2 all the way to verse 6 we have Moses's description of what those works in fact are so we have the the idea that uh because you you know these works you must love him and then there is the explanation of what those works are, which the people of God know. So look at me again now at the beginning of the passage, and we'll, we'll have a chance to look at verse 7 as well. Notice here that the, the passage begins with the command, again connecting this back to what we saw before in light of all the great things that God has done for the people. You must love the Lord your God. You must keep then all the commandments that come from that first great commandment of loving him. And... Uh, as we, we've seen, as we've been talking about for some time now, Moses again grounds all obedience to all commands in the one great commandment, to love the Lord your God. Uh, every kind of obedience to every kind of command is rooted in our need to love God. And here, notice, as he moves on to verse 2 then, and as he begins to ground the reasons why they are to love the Lord your God, um, He begins by saying, at the beginning of verse 2, Know today that I do not speak with your children who have not known and who have not seen the chastening of the Lord. So here he says, I'm not speaking to those who do not know, or even those who have not seen. And then really, in terms of the way that this passage is structured, the rest of the passage is a description of what those works are, that the children have not seen and have not known. But that your eyes have seen. so it can be a bit tricky to, to follow the structure of this passage but really once we get to verse two verses two to seven it, it really is really one long sentence where Moses is contrasting the knowledge of the people he's addressing with the lack of knowledge of their children whom he is not addressing and the, and everything in the middle, is a description of what those works are as i had mentioned and so really in terms of the structure the exhortation of this passage if you were to think about the way in which verse one relates to then verse two and seven the idea of the whole passage is you must love the lord your god because i'm not speaking to those who do not know and who have not seen but rather i'm speaking to those whose very eyes have seen all the great things which god has done that's the logic of the passage because your eyes have seen these things there is a greater obligation for you to love the lord your god more knowledge of god leads to a greater duty of love and it also means by implication as well that if you do not love the lord your god as one who has seen the great works of god then it is actually a greater sin to turn away from god the heightened obligation to love god means it is in fact a worse sin to turn away from god if you know what God's love is, if you have experienced it yourself. So if you think about this, even with uh, unfaithfulness in, in, a, in a given marriage, adultery is always wrong. There can never be an excuse for adultery. However, adultery is aggravated and made worse if you commit adultery against someone who has faithfully loved you and cared for you. That's a a very different thing, and it's a greater aggravation of the sin if the person you are sinning against has in fact loved you. And this is what Moses is speaking of here. God has loved you. You know his love for you. If now you turn away from him, there's no excuse for it, it's always wrong, but it is in fact a greater sin. It's a greater sin because of the knowledge that you have. Think if we even connect this with the, the, the passage we looked at last week. The great and awesome and comprehensively glorious God has condescended to love you. God has been faithful to you in everything that he's done, even though you are a lowly sinner. If God has shown this kind of love for you and you know that love, then to turn away from him is an increase in the the gravity of the sin. It's a very different thing, even from an unbeliever who never Uh, knows of God, who never uh, is admitted into the church, who doesn't know any of these things, that is a lesser sin for him to remain in unbelief than it would be for you to turn away from God and to become an unbeliever as one who in fact knows all of the greatness of these things. That's what Moses is saying here. The greater knowledge that you have of God's love, the greater obligation there is to love him in return. And this is something that we really see all throughout the scriptures. Uh, scripture is is always speaking uh, in this way. So if we think of uh, a really graphic example of this is Ezekiel's description of Israel as a harlot in Ezekiel 16. There there is this this long allegory where uh, Israel is compared to um, a, a little child who was found uh, in her blood, just left out to die. God cares for the child, brings the child in, and then after. Uh, even making the child uh, dressed as royalty and giving her the highest position in the home, she then turns on him and becomes a harlot. That's that's what Israel was doing to God. And the sin of the harlotry is made worse in Ezekiel by the fact that God had cared so much for his people, that he had done so much to care for them. We see the same thing even in the New Testament. Think of Matthew chapter 11, where Jesus uh, condemns Bethsaida, Chorazin. And he says in, in those passages that it's actually going to be worse for them than it will be for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment. And if you remember the reason, it's because more works were done in you. You saw greater works than Sodom and Gomorrah and you did not repent. They would have repented, Christ ends up saying. They, Sodom and Gomorrah would have repented. They would have seen that all the great works that you've seen. So therefore, because you have seen more works and you have still not believed, your condemnation on the last day will be greater. Greater knowledge of God's works leads to a greater obligation to believe in him. And if you do not believe in him, then it will be, in fact, a greater sin. Now, this means, brothers and sisters, particularly for you, that it is, it is, a far greater obligation for you to believe because all of you are members of the church. You've professed your faith before uh, the elders. You have testified. Even, Even there's been conversations had to show that you, in fact, know all the things of which I'm speaking about the love of God. You've experienced them. Now, you may say, Well, I may know them kind of secondhand, but I've not seen them. And so in some ways, my experience of the love of God is not the same as the people of God in the wilderness. But if you say that, remember what Paul says in Galatians chapter three. Remember the Galatian church had never seen the Lord Jesus Christ with their physical eyes. And yet in the beginning of Galatians chapter three, Paul says, who has bewitched you to turn away from Christ who is publicly portrayed before your eyes as crucified? What Paul is saying in in Galatians is that through the preaching of the word, your eyes actually have seen the Lord Jesus Christ. Your physical eyes may never have done it, but you in fact have seen him. Christ in the preaching of the gospel was publicly portrayed before you openly as having been crucified. And so what Paul says to the Galatians is you have seen it. You, you have seen it, and there is no way in which you can make an excuse and say, and you know, turn back to this religion of the Pharisees and, and uh, the Judaizers, as was the, the temptation in the Galatian church. You, you have no excuse for doing so because you have experienced, through the preaching of the word, you have experienced the love of God. Do not turn back you have experienced too many great things. This kind of logic actually is um, the logic of most of the book of Hebrews. That's the, the way almost the entire book of Hebrews uh, is structured. And there, it's actually in the book of Hebrews, uh, not just that you've experienced the love of God and therefore there's no excuse, but what's, what is even, more, um, even greater than uh, what Moses is speaking of, because the people in the New Testament, in our own church age have experienced not just the redemption out of Egypt, but even a greater redemption through the Lord Jesus Christ, there is in fact a greater obligation on you to love the Lord your God than there was even for the people that Moses is speaking with who even saw the Exodus, who even saw all the plagues. This is the way that, uh, that um, Hebrews works all the way throughout. So there'll be this great description of the difference between Christ and the angels. Christ is far greater than the angels. If the law was in some way put in place through angels and people who did not respect the law of Moses, if they were, were cut down in judgment, how much worse will it be for you if, if you neglect such a great salvation that came through the Lord Jesus Christ, who is far greater than the angels? Uh, if if uh, the law of Moses is set aside and, it, and someone is condemned on the evidence of two or three witnesses, how much greater of a judgment will it be for you if you trample on the, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ by which you have been sanctified. If setting aside Moses is bad and that leads to judgment, then it'll be far worse for you because you're setting aside Christ who is far greater. You have, a, you have knowledge of a greater salvation. You have experience of a greater love and therefore you will be more held to a, a higher standard, held to more account because of uh, the great things which you yourself have seen. And this is how we're to even understand the very difficult passage in Hebrews 6 about uh, those who have been enlightened by the Spirit, who have tasted the heavenly gift. The idea here is it's those who have known the greatness of all of God's works, they've experienced it themselves, and then as those who are members of the covenant, who then turn away. And the, the author of the Hebrews says, you know, how can they be renewed to repentance? The idea there is that there is a version of this kind of sin where you know of the love of God, and you know it very personally, and then you turn away from him, that actually it's such a grave sin that you will never be forgiven of it, that you will be so hardened that you will actually just uh, be be left to uh, your own devices, and you will never, in fact, be granted repentance in this life. Now it doesn't mean that that everyone who backslides is, is gone, that they can't be uh, that they can't be saved. But it does mean that there is a very real hardening that happens for those who do backslide and who know the knowledge of the truth. And the greater the knowledge of the truth, the more dangerous the sin of turning away from God is. And there is a point where if you know enough and you've experienced enough of the love of God and then you turn away, there is actually no hope of being restored to repentance. And notice even the the gravity of that sin is 100% based on the knowledge, the experiential knowledge that you have of the greatness of the works of God. Paul even speaks of this in his own uh, kind of autobiographical statement in First Timothy 1, where he's speaking about the way in which he persecuted the church. And he says that he was granted grace because he did it in ignorance. The, the idea of what Paul is saying is, is that his actions showed uh, him to be very much similar to one who had committed the sin that leads unto death the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit of which there will be no forgiveness. The only thing that Paul says that separates him from someone who actually committed that sin was his lack of knowledge, is that he was legitimately ignorant. If he had not been ignorant, then he would have been committing the sin that leads unto death, the the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. But notice, the one thing that kept him from that is the lack of knowledge that he had. The greater knowledge that you have of the love of God the greater the obligation that you have to love him and the greater the sin for turning away from him. Your obligation to love God increases with your increase of knowledge. So brothers and sisters, consider your privilege. Consider the privilege that is yours, that you would know this grace, that you would know the love of God. Remember what Ezekiel speaks of. God finds this little infant abandoned and wallowing in, in its own blood. He has pity. He takes her in. He washes her. He cares for her. He treats her as royalty. He gives her a great robe and clothes her and then she turns away from him. Let it not be that you would know this kind of love and then turn away from God. There is no, There are no excuses. Your eyes have seen. Your eyes have seen things and through the preaching of the word that are even far greater than the things which Moses here is speaking of. I am not speaking to those who do not know. I am speaking to those who know. I'm speaking to those who have seen with their own eyes the great works of God. Now, if we were to ask then, what are these works? And so Moses details in the middle of the passage, second part of verse two, all the way through verse six. Now this, this description of the great works of God, which the people knew and which removes all of their excuses, can be broken up into two parts. Second part of verse two, all the way through the end of verse five is a description of God's work of redemption. And then in verse six, there is a description of God's work in discipline. So God's work of redemption and God's work of discipline. Those are the, the way that Moses breaks up uh, this description of God's works. And, and in both cases, they remove our excuse not to love him. They are a great encouragement to us to love him because we've seen all these great things. Notice here, the, 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 the thing that Moses says that the people of God have seen, that their children have not seen, is the chastening of the Lord. Now, this word can also be translated as something like discipline, um, where it's, more related to simply instruction, training, and wisdom and righteousness, uh, the idea there is um, it's it's not just a a discipline in terms of a more negative thing, especially since the second part of uh, verse two all the way down to verse five is all positive and in and, and no way is against the people of God. It's all for their benefit. It's re, it's a redemption, and so the thing in which. Moses says that the people of God have seen in verses 2 to 5 is all related to the Exodus. Now we have a lot of language here that's very classically related to the Exodus. I had had mentioned several times the idea of God's mighty hand and outstretched arm. That description of God is always related to the Exodus. Uh, God showed his mighty hand and his outstretched arm when he sent all the plagues to Egypt and when he cast the horse and the rider uh, into the sea. And this is exactly then what Moses goes on to recount, all his signs, his acts, which he did in the midst of, of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his land. And then the emphasis falls ultimately on the way in which the seas covered up Uh, Pharaoh, when uh, the people of God were passing through uh, the Red Sea. And then finally, in verse 5, there is God's care for the people uh, in the wilderness, which Moses has already expounded uh, much on, particularly in chapter 8 of the book of Deuteronomy. Now, the idea here is your eyes have seen this great redemption. If you remember going back to Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses has already spoken of, of these great acts of redemption and said, you ask from one end of heaven to the other whether anything like this has ever been done in no place on earth has this been done and from no time since the beginning of creation to the present time and never again will anything ever, ever like what happened in the Exodus ever be done where God brought an entire nation out of another nation with a great hand and an outstretched arm when he did all of these great and mighty acts against Pharaoh and, and all of his army. There is a greatness to the work of redemption, Moses is saying, and your eyes have seen it. Now, As I mentioned uh, in the book of Hebrews, all throughout the New Testament, these things are heightened with the Lord Jesus Christ, particularly with the cross. And so think, remember back to the end of Micah, Micah chapter 7, verses 18 to 20, where there is going to be a new exodus, which is prophesied. And it's not the horse and the rider that is thrown into the sea, but it is our sins themselves. That's what Micah prophesies in Micah chapter 7. Our sins will be cast into the depths of the sea. In Hebrews chapter 2, death is defeated. In Colossians chapter 2, all the spiritual forces that stood against us are defeated. So it's not just that Pharaoh is defeated, who is in some ways a a picture of these greater forces that are against us, but they are actually defeated. The the, the spiritual forces and death itself is defeated by Christ at the cross. It's at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ that the seas of God's judgment are swallowed up sin, death, and Satan, not just Pharaoh and his army, but the seeds of God's judgment swallowed up sin, death, and Satan. And this is what has publicly been portrayed before you with through the preaching of the word. This is what your eyes have seen." Remember when, when Paul says that in Galatians chapter three, it's not just that Christ has been put before your eyes, but it's that Christ has been put before your eyes as one who has been crucified. As the one who's been crucified, it is there on the cross that the Lord Jesus Christ has defeated all of his enemies, where the greatness of the works of redemption are seen. This is, this is where the horse and the rider, so to speak, was thrown into the depths of the sea. Now, Moses also mentioned the wilderness, which is parallel to even our own lives now. Notice in, in, the, in the Old Testament, in the, the book of Numbers in particular, God cares for his people as they walked Through the wilderness, he gave them the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day that they would be cared for and protected and that they would know the way in which to go. God was leading his people to the promised land and he was making sure that they lacked for nothing. Remember in Deuteronomy chapter 8, their sandals did not wear out, their clothes did not wear out. God had cared for them, he had provided them with the manna in the wilderness, he had made sure that they would reach their final goal and destination. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ has promised us something that's far greater. Not that we would go through this life with a pillar of cloud and fire to guide us, but that he would actually put his Holy Spirit within our hearts so that what Christ said at the end of Matthew chapter 28 would be true when he promised that he is with us always, even to the end of the age. So God has performed for us a great act of redemption through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he promises even in our own lives, all throughout our lives to the very end, always to be with us, that we would know his care, his love, and his provision. These are the things which your eyes have seen. These are even the things which you know by experience. This is the, the, a picture of the incomprehensibly great love which God has shown to his people. Remember last week when we looked at uh, God's great glory and yet his condescension to his people and how that ultimately was shown in the Lord Jesus Christ and in the incarnation. This is, this is a picture of what God has done for you in his love. And the point of this passage is to say, you know it, you know it. You know these things, and therefore you must love God. Do not trample on the blood of Christ by which you have been sanctified. Do not trample on the blood of Christ by which you have been sanctified. You have seen the great acts of redemption that he has done. Now, notice as well, verse 6. It's very interesting. After a long discussion of the work, great works of redemption that God has done for his people, there is a very uh, curious um, work that God shows. It's the only negative work towards God's people that is in the entire passage, and it's the work of discipline. Notice after this long description of uh, the ways in which God has saved his people from uh, the Egyptians, there is and then in verse 6, the way in which he destroyed Dathan and Abiram when the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed them while they were alive and they went down alive even to the depths of Sheol. Now, why would Moses include this in this long description of the great works of God? It's very it's it's clearly quite different from all the works which he had, had spoken before. Everything else was for the sake of the salvation of God's people and uh, it was something that ended up being good for God's people. Now we have something that, is, uh, something that is a work that is done against God's people as a judgment on them, not for their salvation, but rather for their judgment. What's the purpose uh, of this? The reason that Moses includes this is, is because it's not just the great works of salvation that show us our obligation to love God. It is also the way in which God all throughout history provides us with examples of what happens to those who turn away. What happens to those who do not take heed to Moses' words? The, those are things that you know as well. So it's, it's one thing to, to know of God's works and the greatness of the salvation and to say that you know, I'm, I must love God because, of, I've, because I know all these things. It goes even a step further to say that not only do you know these works that perform the foundation for why you ought to love God, but you also know what happens to those who don't. You know what happens to those who don't love God, who should love God. You know that you should. You know the works, which prove that you should. And you know what happens to those who don't. The people of God uh, had seen what happened to Dathan and Abba. Remember what happened to them. They were uh, a part of Korah's rebellion in Numbers 16, Uh, Korah himself was part of the Kohathites, which we actually just read uh, earlier in the service with the duties of the Kohathites. They were uh, the most privileged of all the Levites. The only thing that they did not have was the priesthood. They were the most privileged and yet they wanted more. And so because of that, they rebelled. Dathan and Abiram also wanted more uh, power as well. And so they complained against Moses, not recognizing their own privilege, but wanting more power. And when they challenged Moses and even more particularly, Aaron, then uh, God actually uh, destroys Korah and his company by fire, and then Dathan and Abiram, you know, God says, if these people die a natural death, I promise I have not spoken from God. That's what Moses says, and then the earth swallows up their entire families, and they go down uh, alive into Sheol itself. The purpose of this is to show if you turn away from God, it's not just that it's a great sin, and it is a great sin that's made even far worse because of your knowledge of God, but there are terrible things in store for you. There are terrible acts of judgment that have come to everyone who has committed these great sins. Now, remember, Dathan and Abiram, they're not like Pharaoh and his armies. They were covenant members. They were, they were members of the church. And all throughout the scriptures, there are these examples that God gives of those who had great privilege and yet still turn away from him. And always the judgments are terrible to think of. And the purpose is, uh, is just to show, even as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, that that these things were written down for our instructions so that he who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. It is for those who truly love God also to take heed of the warnings that come for those who will in fact not continue in love for God. And so think of Lot's wife. It's the purpose of the the record of that story. Uh, Lot's wife, as she's fleeing from Sodom, turns around because she misses all the great things that she had in Sodom. And God says, uh, you know, if you're not going to be wholly devoted to me, then you will be destroyed. And she's immediately turned into a pillar of salt. Nadab and Abihu did not respect the warnings concerning God's worship. They did not keep it pure. And so they were immediately struck down by fire. Ananias and Sapphira wore, uh, uh, lied against the Holy Spirit and they were immediately struck down. The apostle Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians 11, of those who do not partake of the Lord's Supper properly, they were immediately struck down. And the point is all is to, of all this is, to, is this, is that it is a very serious thing to turn away from God. It is a very serious thing. And the scriptures are filled with examples of what happens to those who do not remain, uh, who do not remain faithful to the Lord, but who turn away from him. It's not just that you know the works. It's not just that you know the works. You also know the judgments that come against those who turn away. You know of these things. You know what happened to Dathan and Abiram when they, having seen all these works, did not remain faithful to God, did not consider their privilege, but wanted more, and so rebelled against the Lord." part of, remember brothers and sisters, part of true faith, as it's defined in our confession, is trembling at the threats of God. It's trembling at his threats, that it does put a fear in our hearts to think about what God does to sinners he's angry with. Our God is a consuming fire, and it is for us to tremble at even the thought of turning away from him, because God uh, is a God of justice, Who will leave ultimately no sin unpunished. He will leave no sin unpunished. And so, brothers and sisters, let us continue in our love for the Lord. Let us continue. I am speaking as one who is preaching to you this evening. I am speaking to those who know of all of God's great works. I'm speaking to those who know of his works of redemption and those who know of his works of discipline. Now, There may be difficult times ahead of us you know nobody knows what's coming certainly there have been difficult times that we have gone through and all of these times that we go through uh, are temptations and trials and always the temptation is to turn away from god for this or that reason but brothers and sisters in light of all the things that god has done there really can be no excuse for turning away from the lord God has seen us through. He's always seen his people through. It's another thing that we've seen all throughout the scriptures. God has seen us through to this point, and he will continue to see us through. It is always for us to consider the greatness of the Lord, to consider the things that we know that we we have seen, and to love him for these things. May it be that God would grant us hearts to love him with all of our heart, soul, and strength that we would bear much fruit to the praise of his glorious grace. For truly, brothers and sisters, he is worthy. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we do confess before you our own weakness. Lord, we can say with Moses as Moses, in some sense, even corners us and shows us that there is simply no excuse for not loving you we have been given everything and yet lord we often see in ourselves a coldness a deadness our love is quite pitiful in comparison with with the love which you have shown to us lord may it be that you would help us to honor you that we would love you that we would see the great way in which you loved us and that we'd even be able to see in ourselves that Even if we make great progress in our love for you, it is still nothing compared to what you have done for us. Lord, give us faithfulness. Help us to to remain faithful even in the most trying and difficult of circumstances. And may even our lives in this way be a testimony to the world of the love which you have shown for us. Help us, O Lord, so to keep this first and great commandment, to love you with all of our heart, soul, and strength, For we ask it in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 Brothers and sisters, let's respond now to the preaching of God's Word by singing a word of praise, singing particularly the doxology. We'll stand as we sing. Thanks for listening. If you found this sermon helpful, please give us a five-star review as this will help make the Word of God preached more available to others. Also, if you'd like to find out more about our church, you can visit our website at newcovopcssf.com. That's N-E-W-C-O-V-O-P-C-S-S-F.com.